Okay. Good morning, everyone. Come and grab a seat, please. If you have a Bible, could you please turn to the book of Philippians? Philippians, because we're going back there today to continue our series on joy, joy, joy. Um, looking at this Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi with the big theme of joy running throughout the letter that we're going to just focus in on each week and see what that means uh, for us. I mentioned last week a couple of resources that I want to just offer to you as we study the book of Philippians. If you want to take your study a little bit further, want to do a bit more. The first one I um, mentioned was the, this book, To Live is Christ, To Die is Game by Matt Chandler. If you haven't read this, encourage you to read this, read it along as we're doing it. I put the links on the email out if you got there. It'll just give you a link to Amazon. You can find it somewhere cheaper. Do that. This is a great book, encouraging book on the study of, um, on the book of Philippians. So read that, study that. The second one was this, um, the ESV scripture journal, which I'm using to, as I read along and study and prepare my sermons where you've got the, uh, the text of the Bible and a nice blank space next to it so you can write for all your notes on the book. And it's just got the text of Philippians and you can just take, make an opportunity to scroll all over it, and it doesn't affect your normal Bible. Um, and that's fine. That really helpful. Anything God says, I jot down as I'm studying it. So I commend those to you, and I hope you are having fun as we look through this book. Now, before we get started um, today, I don't know if you've ever um, uh, eaten something or bought something and read on the packaging those um, warning labels that they have on the packaging just to, you know, give you the customer be aware. And have you noticed some of them are on the more ridiculous end of things? The one, you heard about the one with the packet of peanuts which says may contain nuts and you're a bit like, uh-huh. But these are some health warnings which, no joke, apparently these are true and I found these and they're on the internet so they've got to be true, haven't they? These are actual warnings. Now the first one is, this is on, on some fireplace logs. Can we have it up? No, Joe, on a, on a, on a, it says, caution, risk of fire. Well, I would hope so. This one was on a child's scooter. What does it say? Warning, this product moves when used. You're like, yep, you're right on there. This one was on an, you know a pattern that you iron on a shirt? What does it say? Do not iron while wearing the shirt. Well, thank you for that. That's very helpful. This one was on a dishwasher. Do not allow children to play in the dishwasher. They have to be pretty small to get in there, but, you know, thanks for keeping us abreast on that. This was on a jet ski. You know the jet skis you fly around? Never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. You've got to wonder what sort of person would, but there you go. This one was on, this one, great, this one, love it. This was on a cup of coffee. Avoid pouring on crotch area. Well, thank you for that. This one was on one of those kind of Black & Decker power drills. This product not intended for use as a dental drill. Oh, all right then. This one was on one of a child's pushchair. Remove child before folding. Thank you. And my absolute favorite, you save the best to last. You have to read it. This was on a thermometer. A thermometer. Once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. You're welcome. <laughs> what on earth has that got to do with the sermon today? <laughs> 
nothing really whatsoever. I thought it was funny. No, I'm saying that because this sermon needs to come with a health warning. Um, because what we're looking at today is we're looking at this theme of joy through the book of Philippians. We looked at the first part, which was the key to joy, all about Jesus. Last week, we looked about joy and loneliness as Paul was all alone writing this letter. I've been separated from his church and what that meant for us. And today's one is about joy in suffering. So this one is not going to be a straightforward sermon. It's not going to be something nice, light and fluffy and easy. It's going to be something that is difficult and challenging because we're going to look at the area of suffering and then how we cope with that. What life throws suffering at us in so many different forms and ways and what are we going to do with that as followers of Jesus? What are we going to do that with that as Christians? And how on earth do we find joy in suffering is our topic today. Now, speaking generally, suffering is the result of sin. In the beginning, when God made everything, it was good and it was right and it was perfect. And then man sinned. We rebelled against God. And since that point... Suffering has entered the world in its many forms, and we endure it in so many ways. It actually, interestingly, begins at birth. Ask any mother. Suffering begins at birth. Well, actually, really, it begins before birth, doesn't it? Through birth, and then throughout our life, we have suffering. We live in a broken and hurting world. We through sin, suffer, but we also cause others to suffer as well because we're flawed and sinful and we do and say and act in ways that cause suffering on others, whether intentionally or unintentionally. It's just what happens. To put it simply, life is suffering. You're welcome. Now you can understand why I made you laugh at the front, just to, you know, tee us up for this. And the Bible is no stranger to this fact. If you read the book of Psalms, these were songs that God's people sang, songs filled with joy and the greatness and the wonder of God. About a third of them, scholars tell us, are psalms of lament, psalms of mourning and grieving and pain. And if you spend time reading through them, I'm doing the Bible in a year, we're encouraging people to read our Bible every day, read through the psalms. There are some psalms in there where there is obvious grief on the part of the author as they write. There's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is a book of lament, grieving, suffering. Much of the prophetic writing in the Bible is along these lines. There is times when the prophets are feeling the pain and anguish of what's going on. Many characters if not all characters in the Bible, suffer in some way if you follow their stories. In the narrative parts of the Bible, you read many of the Old Testament characters, they went through incredible suffering. Two in particular actually got to a point where it's written down in God's Word that they were saying, they were kind of questioning why they were even born, Job and Jeremiah. It was so bad. You know, why was I even born, Lord? My suffering is so great. I am so overcome with what is happening. Even Jesus himself when he walked the earth, it says he wept and lamented over the city of Jerusalem at the state it was in, the state of God's chosen people were in, and he just wept. And later at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible simply says, Jesus wept. And if we go forward to the story of the early church in the book of Acts, it's basically one of persecution, persecution sorry, suffering and death. 
If you read that story through, that is what's happening to them. And everywhere we look, we see suffering. You just have to go to any of the myriad of news feeds, newspapers, online, um, websites. You find stories of pain and suffering. We're dealing with this country with the, the threat of Brexit, whatever that means. Is it going to be bad or is it going to be absolutely terrible? We're not sure. But that's what's coming. You know, uh, and you hear so many stories related to earthquakes and floods and terrorism and just scandal upon scandal in government, in showbiz, all these things we are dealing with. I even picked up our local paper, which came through my door Friday morning, um, The Observer, that we get here in Sutton, and even that, I flicked through some of the stories, and you have some of the nice human interest piece, but there were stories of suffering through there. People who'd had items stolen, people who'd been robbed, the police were on a manhunt after this person. It's all suffering, and so the reality for us all is we will suffer. It is not a case of if, but when we will suffer. And what we're going to learn from today is the Apostle Paul, from the Apostle Paul, and he knew about suffering, suffering intimately. He was a man who was well acquainted with suffering in so many ways. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read some of his words to us to underline this. And this is from the book of 2 Corinthians, if you've ever read it, which is another letter the Apostle Paul wrote to another church in a city called Corinth. And these are just some extracts. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Later in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. In chapter 11, starting at verse 23, he says, I'm talking like a madman, with far great labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jew the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul was a man who knew suffering, and I would submit to us today, he probably knew suffering better than any one of us in what he experienced in just from those few verses there of his life. And what we're going to read now is the next section of the, his letter to uh, the church in Philippi, and then we're going to look at a little bit how we found joy in suffering. So let's, if you've got your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to start reading from verse 12. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Can we have the next one up? Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, O oh, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay, let's go through this passage, have a little bit of a look at what's going on. First bit, he's in prison, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is in prison. If you go through that passage, he mentions imprisonment three times. He is literally in change. And he's saying to the church at Philippi, he's, got, he's done his initial kind of high. It's from me and Paul and Timothy. We're writing to you. We're servants of Christ. Grace and peace with you. He's done that thanksgiving. At the beginning, I'm thanking God for you because I've heard about you. He prays for them. We looked at that last week. And now he's saying, I wanted to tell you what's happened to me. And he calls them as brothers, the church. They're in this. They're in the family of God together. They're one people. There is a connectus there. And he says, I want you to know what's going on. And he's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. He is alone, incarcerated, literally chained up. Chained up to a guard who will be watching over him. He is alone. He's been unjustly imprisoned. He hasn't committed a crime. And he is awaiting trial and possible execution faces him as a result. And being in a Roman prison was no picnic. Being in prison itself would not be a picnic. But in a Roman prison, particularly bad. It might have been cold. There's no, we don't even know if some of the prisoners didn't even have beds. He would have been chained up his whole time. He might not have even been given food. He would have to rely on people from the outside to bring him food to keep his strength up, to bring him clothes, to keep him warm, keep him safe from the elements. There's the constant threat of execution on the whim of an authority that could be vindictive and cruel at the drop of a hat. That's where he is. He's literally living on a knife edge. One way or the other, it could go. And one of them will result in his death. He is suffering in a terrible way. Something that many of us would never experience quite what he's up against, that kind of looming threat. He is alone. He has, doesn't have his church there. They're in Philippi, he's got no wife, he's got no kids, he is just kind of at the end of it all. Yet, what is his concern? He says, I want you to know what's happened to me. He doesn't dwell on it. I'm in prison. Fine, move on. He says, what has happened to me has really served to what? Advance the gospel. That is his focus. That is his concern. And what we've got here is an interesting kind of situation that we need to process when we suffer because... When we look at what Paul is going through and his attitude to it and how he processes it in this letter, we have to ask ourselves a question. And the question is, will your suffering be purpose, purposeful or purposeless? Is your suffering going to be purposeful or purposeless? If it is purposeless and you just suffer, what would happen is you'd be prone to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness Rage at God, rage at other people, at circumstances, at situations, at authorities, or whatever's caused you to get into that situation. And that would be the sum total of it. And you would just be caught up in that cycle. 
And that's all that you would kind of be focused on. That would be it. Why am I suffering? Or blaming someone for your suffering and just getting more and more bitter as a result. And unforgiveness can be a deadly thing in our lives as we kind of churn over it, chew over it. Or your suffering can be purposeful. You can suffer with meaning. And here's some questions to sort of process that. It says, will your suffering compel you to love Jesus more? Will your suffering compel you to love Jesus more? Because Paul's suffering here. He's had everything stripped away. No money, no home, any position of authority or power he might have enjoyed, finances, everything's gone. And yet, when all is stripped away, he can look and say, actually, the only thing I need is Jesus. He's the one thing sustaining me. And when we go through suffering, we find things are taken from us. Our health, our freedom, our money, our home. And actually, are we going to find in that situation that actually Jesus is our ultimate treasure and he is enough? Second question, will your suffering purify your motives? Will your suffering purify your motives? Because we can be honest, we do lots of things for lots of reasons. And often our motives are less than pure, based on selfish ambition, trying to get one up, trying to get ahead, trying to get better, trying to get more. But yet suffering can strip all that away, and we suddenly see what we've been chasing and why we've been chasing it. And suffering can purify us. And are you going to let suffering do that and actually focus, actually, the one thing, the main thing, is going after Jesus? Last one. Will your suffering cause you to reorientate your priorities towards the gospel? Will your suffering cause you to reorientate your priorities towards the gospel, which is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Often we can start out living for the gospel. Yeah, Jesus is our focus. It's kind of what we're going on. But the world just crowds in. The comforts of this life crowds in. The seductions of this life crowds in. The desire for career advancement, more money, bigger home, better car, more holidays, family, kids, just wanting to get ahead, just taking life easy, enjoying it, being healthy and happy. But actually suddenly suffering comes in and you suddenly realize what's really important. What's really important. And suffering can help us reorientate our motives if we let it. Reorientate our priorities if we let it. Reorientate us onto Jesus and the gospel. So we have Paul. He's in prison. He's suffering. He's going through a horrific time. Yet... Number two, the gospel advances. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, he says, I want you to know about me, yet the gospel advances. It says, so that it is become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment, his suffering, has actually served the very purpose he desired, that Jesus would be known. Contrary to expectations, 
the effect of putting Paul in prison has actually had the opposite effect that you would think. We'll put him in prison, he's out the way, he can't tell other people about Jesus, but actually the opposite has happened. It's now everyone seems to know about what he's done. The gospel has advanced. It's advanced in the prison where he is. He's chained to a guard. Apparently they ran in four-hour shifts. Before guards had come, on, come and watch over him in four-hour shifts, and you had the Praetorian guard, the imperial guard, the elite guard who were responsible for guarding the emperor, and prisoners around them in Rome, he's now chained to them. And Paul is thinking, well, if I'm chained to you for four hours at, four hours at a time, guess what? <laughs> you think I'm captive. You think I'm in prison. You think I can't go anywhere. Guess what? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Why on earth would God chain a guard to the Apostle Paul if he didn't want him to know about Jesus? He didn't want him. And it says that the entire guard, the entire garrison know. Because Paul is telling this guy on his four-hour shift, the next guy comes in, guess what? I was just telling your mate about something. Let me fill you in. He then goes back to his buddies in the barracks. You've been chained to Paul today. Yeah, I was on a shift with Paul. Never guess what he told me about. This guy, Jesus, and how he could forgive my sins and change my life. And before long, it says the whole imperial garrison knew about it. Was there any other way that the good news of Jesus was going to get into that group of rough, tough soldiers? The elite, the veterans, the toughest men in the empire. How would we get the gospel there? I'll tell you what, I'll put my best in prison, says God. They'll have to listen then. And the message goes forth. They all know that Paul is in prison, not for crimes like murder or theft or treason or anything political, like a particular cause he's after. He's trying to unseat the government, unseat the power. He's in there because of Jesus, and they all know it. And it's not only then, it says, and all the rest, this kind of sort of vague comment. There are others as well outside the prison. Maybe they've been responsible for administering it. Maybe they were kind of civil servant type characters who were just helping run the government. But they now know as well. So it's not just, it's not just the guards who've been guarding them. These other people could be other prisoners as well. Maybe they've overheard what's going on because the guard he told here went and get locked up to another prisoner on his next shift. And he then passed on. Well, I was chained up this dude Paul in the other cell. All he'd rabbit on about was Jesus. The other prisoner says, Jesus? Who's Jesus? It just keeps going. Everyone seems to know while they're there all about Jesus. But it's not only inside the prison it's had effect. It seems to have had an effect outside the prison as well. It says that the believers, the brothers, the other Christians in Rome have reacted to Paul's imprisonment. Paul, the great apostle, the one who met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, who was blinded, who then, was then prayed for. He could see. He then met the other apostles in Jerusalem, became an apostle to the Gentiles. He's a mega figure of the early church. He's now been taken out, put in prison. He's been left from us. What would the church do when one of their leaders gets taken out? Do they freak out? Do they go into themselves? Do they cower in fear? Do they say, this isn't worth doing it? Let's just span the church. Let's just disappear off into nothing. No, it says that they have become more confident in the Lord. 
what has happened to Paul is actually seeks to increase their boldness, increase their courage. They're saying, well, we know what's happened to Paul. Well, guess what? We need to step up. We've taken out the top guy, the one who, who does the preaching. He's the one who knows the stuff. He's the one who met Jesus. He's gone. What do we do? Well, I guess we need to do it now. We need to fill the place that he's left. We all need to step up. And it seems like they have become more bold in faith as a result. And this is in Rome, the center of the empire. I believe Nero was emperor at the time. And he was on the trajectory from going bad to cuckoo crazy when it comes to Christians. So it's not a good environment to be a Christian. And the tide is turning, but it says no. They with confidence speak out the word of God. And it says without fear. They are unafraid of the consequences. Well, they might think if we speak out about Jesus, we could be in the cell next to Paul. That's, that's the trajectory if we do this. But it says they had no fear of that. They know Jesus was the only way for them. They knew Jesus was their ultimate prize and treasure. And they were not going to stop till they told everyone about him. The gospel was going forth wherever he was. And where Paul was from his prison cell, he knew that everyone in the Everyone in the prison knew about it because of his witness, but he also heard the stories that actually the church itself is going out and the word is going across the city for more and more, peop- uh, more and more people to know. And so Paul, despite his suffering, despite his horrific situation, the physical pain he'd been in, the emotional pain he'd been in, that separation, loneliness, anxiety that we looked at last week, he can sit and say, I can see the bigger picture here. I can see the good news of Jesus is going out. People are talking about Jesus. People are becoming Christians. The church is being strengthened as a result. And he can too rejoice in that. It said at the end of the passage, didn't it? He can find a source of joy in what's going on because he knows ultimately what's the most important thing, what's happening. The last thing in this passage, the last few verses there, we see some mixed motives some mixed motives within this good news. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So basically, it's not all good. In one sense, you can say, well, the gospel seems to be going forth in the prison, outside the prison, that's good. But actually, some of the people doing it are from poor motives. Envy and rivalry. It says, some are doing it from goodwill, some are doing it from envy and rivalry. And this is a reference to probably other Christians in the city, maybe other people in the church. We don't know particularly who they were. But it seems with Paul out the way, the great apostle, people have stepped up to preach the gospel, but actually it's a bit of a mixed bag. Maybe some people have stepped forward and think, finally Paul's out of the way, we can do it our way. Their motive is envious of what Paul had done, maybe what Paul had seen, what Paul had gone through, his position, his authority. And they're actually thinking, finally he's out of the way, we get an opportunity to shine. Actually, we don't want him kind of being, being the big one. We want to be the big one. We want to be the, people, the person people looks to and says it's great. And so we have these two groups. One group motivated by love, love for Paul, love for people. They understand that Paul is in prison for the gospel. And ultimately, there's a sovereign hand of God behind it. And they have stepped up to fill the gap. And they love him and they're praying for him and they're for him. And they're proclaiming the gospel out of love for Paul and love for Jesus. 
and hoping that one day you'll be free and come back to them and the message will go forth. And then that second group, the selfish ambition, other believers who kind of want to get one over on Paul, who's glad he's out the way, actually hoping that by their activity, it says they'll actually cause him even more problems. Not a great attitude for Christians to have, but it does happen. We all know our motives are pure, but yet the gospel is still advancing because they're still um, proclaiming Jesus. And Paul says at the end in this, he's in prison and he hears this stuff. He's like, well, these guys know that's great. Outside it's going well, but you know, there are people in there who are just doing it for just bad reasons. They're preaching Jesus out of envy and selfishness and just what must that have done to him? They're trying to do that to put one over on me as if I'm not suffering enough. I'm in prison. I'm chained up to guards. I'm alone. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm going to get executed possibly. This kind of, it's literally hanging over me. How does he react to that? I know how I would have reacted to that. I'd have had a few choice words (laughs) to say to them, maybe to say to God on their behalf. I'd go Old Testament on them in my prayers. But what does Paul say? What then in verse 18? What then? What do I do with that? Smite them, Lord. (laughs) Do something to them. He says, no, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. If you're counting the numbers of joy and rejoice in Philippians, underline that one. There it comes up again. Rejoice. He's saying do you know what? It doesn't matter the motives behind it. It doesn't matter that they're causing me trouble. It doesn't matter that their intent is actually to try and put one over on me, maybe put me down, show that they're better at it than I am, that they're the right people for the task of leading the church. It doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus is being proclaimed. And in that, I can rejoice. It doesn't matter that some people are doing it out of love for me, love for the gospel, love for Jesus. They want to serve me. They want to serve the church. It doesn't matter that another group are doing it out of selfish, self-centered reasons, out of envy. They want to be the big men. They want to be in charge. They want to have the profile. They want to do all those things. It doesn't matter as long as Jesus is being proclaimed faithfully. And if you go through that passage, you find that Paul's single purpose, single heart in the midst of horrific pressure he is under and suffering is that Jesus is known, that Jesus is made great, that Jesus is glorious. We've seen it all the way through this first chapter, the number of times it comes up, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's an exercise, read through that. Mark off all the times that Paul keeps coming back. It's about Jesus. It's about his gospel. That's the most important thing. And so despite Paul's horrific suffering, he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing in it because he can see beyond his prison cell. He can see beyond the chains and the armed guard. He can see beyond the executioner that is waiting for him. He can see beyond his lack of freedom and his lack of food and his lack of home comforts. He can see beyond his loneliness and his separation from the church he loves. He can see beyond selfish motives of other people who are believers in Jesus. They're just acting and making bad choices. He can see beyond that. And he can see the most important thing is that people need to know about Jesus. And in that, he takes comfort and he takes joy because that's what's 
number one. People in the city of Rome, people all over the empire need to know Jesus for themselves. They need to know that he was God and he came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, born of a virgin. He then suffered and died in our place for our sin. He rose bodily from death, victorious. He commissioned his followers and said, go tell everyone about me so they can have freedom, that they can be forgiven for their sin, that they can know life. And then he ascended into heaven and rules and reigns forever until one day he returns to gather up his church. And he said, that is what's important. That is number one. And I interpret everything through that. And that doesn't minimize or belittle what he's going through. What he was going through was horrific. But he could see in this letter as he talks to his church, this is what's most important. And even from a position of pain and suffering and facing death, he speaks words of comfort to the church in Philippi who must have been worried sick about him. And what's going to happen so far away, so far removed? What's going on? And he's taking words. This is what's most important, church. This is what we should be focusing on. This is what we should be giving our life to. And the fact that the gospel is going forth is I'm just going to devote my time to that and rejoice and pray about that. So as we've kind of finished now, I've got some final questions for us today. Because I know, looking out here, that we're all facing suffering at one, at some, in some way. Some of you will have gone through great suffering in your life to date and kind of living in the aftermath of that. And even as I talk about it, it brings back memories, which bring back pain and everything associated with that. Even if you know you've processed it and it's still raw, it's still there. Some of you are living in it right now and are just thinking, I want to just, I just can't even listen to this because I'm just, I'm in the middle of kind of my hell on earth. And you're facing suffering of some sort, pressure from work and family and health and relationships and finances and whatever it is, you're facing that suffering. And even if you might think, well, I'm not in those two categories, I have to tell you today, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. It will come. And it doesn't matter how big or small it is in relation to someone else's. When you're in it, it's huge. It's massive for you. And you might think, well, that person over there is suffering more than anything. But when you're in it, it's always big because it's your life, your family, your home, your finances that are under the cosh. And for you, you feel that so raw and so real. And so what I've got is some question here is that hopefully will provoke us to how we deal with it and process it. Because the reality is God said, never said you're going to be free from suffering. In fact, he said the opposite which is just unfortunate. Jesus says, you will have trials in this world. We read the examples of people like the Apostle Paul and the other disciples. Nearly all of them died for their faith horrifically. He says, actually, you're going to have sufferings in this world. You're going to have triumphs. He says, I've overcome the world, so take heart. There is something better coming, but you're going to have them. And we need to just be aware of them and process them well. So here's three questions to finish with today. First one, will your suffering become opportunities to speak of Jesus? Will your suffering become opportunities to speak to Jesus? So let me ask you this kind of follow-up question. What are you chained to right now? 
the Apostle Paul was literally chained to a Roman soldier in a prison. What are you chained to right now? Are you chained to a job that you are treated poorly at? You have a vindictive, overbearing boss. The, 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 the structure of your company is immoral or unethical, and you are just in there suffering. You might have colleagues who are cruel and vindictive and seek to undermine you and run you down. You might be up against it in terms of trying to hit targets that are just unreasonable and massive and just... Oh. Or you might just be stuck in this lifeless, dead cubicle in the corner uh, just and hating it. What are you chained to? What about your health? Do you find yourself chained to a hospital or drugs or something just because you need, you need that just to be healthy and strong or to manage the pain you're in? What about in a family situation where there's a relationship that is just sour at the moment and difficult and you are just struggling to process that? It might be with a spouse or a friend or your children who are just, there's just that batting up and it has just come a point of pressure and pain and suffering in your life. And you're just like, how do I deal with this? And whatever that is, whatever you're chained to, the question comes is how are you going to use that to speak for Jesus? How are you going to use that opportunity to talk about Jesus? The people you come across in your life, the people that you're chained to, the situations you're there. What opportunities has God uniquely placed you in, in that situation where you can speak to Jesus? Because Paul was uniquely placed to talk to the elite soldiers of the empire about Jesus. Men of war who are used to killing and fighting in the name of Rome, and then suddenly Paul appears on their doorstep and says, let me tell you about Jesus, transforming lives. Are people going to get saved through your suffering? Because God has put you there for that purpose, to tell others about Jesus. Second question, will Christians who watch you suffer grow in their faith? Will Christians who watch you suffer grow in their faith? So this, this question begs a few things. First one, are you in community? Because Christians are to suffer together. God put us in a community, he called it the church. And he says, you, when you suffer, when you go through life, the highs and the low, you do it together. The people around you, people in your life group, people you know, people you love, do they know what you're going through? Have you told them? Have you just been honest and said, this is what I'm going through. This is where I am. This is what's happening in my life. And as a result of that, could they grow in their faith by they see how you handle it? The Apostle Paul was there, and as a result of his suffering, it says that the church grew in faith. They were more bold and confident to speak about it. Other believers who are walking through suffering and they see you, going through suffering, are they going to grow in their faith as a result by how you handle it, by how the perspective you have on it, by how honest and open and raw you are about it, and saying, actually, this sucks that I'm going through this, but I'm still going after Jesus. And finally, will your suffering lead non-Christians to Jesus? Will your suffering lead non-Christians to Jesus? The reality is, whether you know it or not, or whether you believe it or not, there is a world watching. 
If they know you're a believer, they are watching you. Your colleagues at work, your family and friends who may not be Christians or people you kind of just come into contact with, they know. They're watching. And they're watching and they're asking a question, is this real? Is this legit? Does this work or is this just some phase they're going through? What does it mean when the rubber hits the road and the smelly stuff hits the fan? How do they react? How do they react? When they get into hot water and things start to fall out, how do they react? How do they cope? That's what they want to know. They were asking the question, or they wouldn't put it like this, is Jesus enough for these people? They tell me he is. They seem to act like he is. But when everything's fine, in a nice, warm, middle-class bubble, we've got a home, we've got food, and we've got friends and job, and everything's going, it looks fine. But when things go bad and they're under pressure, is this Jesus enough? And so our question to you, our question to you is, as you suffer, are people going to look in and see, yes, Jesus is their ultimate treasure? Jesus is what matters above everything. They're going to keep going no matter the pain and the suffering that comes in life, no matter what the diagnosis is, when the redundancies hit, when just family just goes nuclear on you and relationships break down and you just have to deal with that, when the kids are playing up, when, when things are just, you're under the cosh, what are they going to see? Are they going to see that Jesus is all sufficient, really? Are they going to see at your lowest head when you've got nothing left and everything stripped away? Said, in Jesus will I praise and I worship. In Jesus I will rejoice. In Jesus I will put my heart and my focus on because he is my ultimate treasure. He is more important than home and jobs and family. And just he's the one I'm going to look to at this, at this situation. Are they going to see you saying, actually, I'm going to lean on my church family because I know they love me and they support me. I'm going to be honest with them. and open. I'm not going to put on a brave. I'm going to just say, this sucks. I need to get the help. Is the community of God going to speak something to the world and say, this is what it looks like. This is what it's for. This is why we're here, to serve and love one another as Christ served and loved us. That's what we do. So the last three questions again, and then I'll pray and we'll finish. Will your suffering become an opportunity to speak of Jesus? Will Christians who watch your suffering grow in their faith as a result? And lastly, will your suffering lead non-Christians to Jesus? Point to him. Do you want to just stand? Can the band come up? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing to finish and see what God's got to say to us out of this. Do you want to just close your eyes? Okay, you all know, you know your life, you know what you're going through, you know what's happening with you, you know what you're kind of living through, and I just want you to bring it to Jesus now. He already knows, so he's not, he's not shocked. <laughs> just bring it to Jesus, just start talking to him about it, how are you doing, what's going on, how you feel. that means getting emotional, do it. It's okay. We're British, but, you know, we'll get over it. 
Just bring it to him. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you suffered and died for us. I thank you that in the grand scheme of things, you suffered way more than we ever could. You're the only one who suffered truly unjustly. Because <laughs> we're all flawed and we're all guilty of something. But actually, you are the only one who has truly unjustly suffered in every way, Lord. And we want to say we love you and we praise you for that. We thank you that you know exactly what we're going through. You can understand it. You can empathize with it. You can walk with us. You know it intimately, personally. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you said you'd never leave us or forsake us in that pain and that suffering. Lord, you said you would strengthen us through it. Lord Jesus, you didn't sugarcoat the good news. You didn't say, you know, everything's going to be okay in this life. It will be eventually, but in this life we're going to suffer. But you said, I am with you every step of the way. Lord, we thank you, though, as we look to the future, there is one day a day without suffering and without tears, and that we will be with you forever, Lord. But in the meantime, as we process pain and suffering on this earth, God, we pray Keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, as we walk through it, God. Connect us in community more and more that we lean on one another as we lean on you. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, you would take our pain and our suffering, Lord, and you would use it for your glory. Lord, we thank you that in your weakness, your power is manifested powerfully. Thank you that your grace sustains us. Lord God, even when our, our suffering is because we've been stupid, you still are with us and you still give us grace and mercy, Lord Jesus. Lord God, we pray you take this pain that we're in, God, and you use it to refine us so we become more like you. Lord, I pray you use it to proclaim your goodness and your glory to the world around, to other believers that they may be built up in faith. To those who don't profess a faith, but they would look and say, there's something different about these Christians because of how they suffer. Lord Jesus, and we ultimately pray and we ultimately ask that you would take all our pain and our suffering and make your name great. Make your name good, Lord, and turn many hearts and many people towards you. God, we want to say we love you and we praise you. Amen.